Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, welcome to this episode of World of Intelligence with James. I'm Harry Kemsley, and as usual, my co-host Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Good to see you, Sean. So uh, as those of you who have heard our previous podcast will know, we often start with a definition of open source intelligence. We're not going to do that this time. We're going to let you go back to previous recordings and hear our definition of open source intelligence. And going forward, we're going to start focusing on not just what open source intelligence is, why it's useful and considerations. We're now going to start looking at some of the practical applications of open source intelligence by looking at some contemporary case studies. And Sean, I thought we might start with actually what's quite a challenging task for open source, which is to look at the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran as a challenge in the security realm and how open source can help us with that. So I think we might start with Iran. Sean? Yeah, it's a really good subject, Harry, and I'm really pleased that you're covering it. You know, with all the bad things that are happening in the world right now with, you know, Ukraine, what's happening in China, other pieces as well, it would be easy to, you know, basically let Iran go down the pecking order in terms of, you know, right. some of the things that we're looking at there. So so I think it's really important. And you, you could consider really that Iran's at an inflection point. I know we say this quite often, but I think in this case, we're not far off because, you know, you've got the, the stalling of the JCPOA, and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit you know whether the jcpoa is it now relevant bearing in mind how far sure. they've gone on you've got the internal dissent which as we know you know periodically turns up but this has been going on for some time now with a, perhaps a bigger scale than before so what does that mean then you've got the increasingly belligerent irgc and and others that are acting more as global actors if you like uh, and trying to influence the world that's not just arms to russia it is you know external uh, influences and potential terrorist activities elsewhere as well. And then you've got the perennial with the supreme leader. You tend to find with autocratic regimes that, you know, there's always rumours about their health, always is. But regardless of whether he's fit and healthy or not, he's an old old man. So, you know, what does that mean? So if you bring all those together, you know, we really need to pay attention to Iran. Right. So it almost sounds like the country's at a strategic crossroads. So let's uh, let's examine that. Now, to help us examine that, unusually, I've brought three colleagues from James to join me who are all individually experts in Iran. And I'll explain who they are in just a second and introduce them. But as we do so, let's make sure we're focused uh, on the outcome, which is how does open source intelligence help with the analysis of something like the security challenge that uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran might pose. So in no particular order, first of all, Lewis Smart. Lewis heads up the Jane's Middle East and North Africa country intelligence team at Jane's. Politics and international relations expert, he previously ran Jane's chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear team. Hello, Lewis. Hi there, Harry. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Next, next we have Jake Abel, who has spent the last 11 years at Jane's leveraging his previous experience within the US intel community, where he was an Iran expert within the Defense Intelligence Agency. He's also spent time with the US Congress conducting oversight for the House Permanent Select Committee and worked as a foreign policy staff member within the office of the Speaker. Hello, Jake. Harry, good morning. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. And thirdly, but by no means least, we have Shristi Punja, 
who is a senior analyst within the Jane's Country Intelligence Middle East and North Africa team, with a particular expertise and over three years experience on Iranian nuclear proliferation. Now, having a software engineering background, she is ideally qualified to apply advanced analytical techniques to the open source intelligence specialist specialization. So, Shristi, welcome. Hello. Hello, Harry. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. So, for the three of you, and with Sean's help, I believe that where you have a relatively closed society, such as the nature of the Iranian society, with heavy censorship, robust counterintelligence, it actually makes penetrating that kind of environment even more challenging for open source as an intelligence we are trying to draw from Iran. It's very hard to do that when it's closed. So given that context, Lewis, perhaps I could start with you. To what extent do you think open source and the intelligence you can derive from it is actually suited for enabling a better understanding of Iran as a security challenge? Lewis? Yeah, thanks, Harry. So I'm going to be a bit controversial here and start by saying that I think actually, and I'll go on to see how OSINT can be a help, but also I think the issue is that actually OSINT can be a hindrance. And that's because although Iran is a closed society, there's actually quite a lot that breaks out of the country in terms of video, imagery, social media posts. You know, the, the Iranian regime certainly makes sure to keep as much as it can within the country, but there's actually significant leakage. And I think actually the issue with this leakage of OSIN is actually can make analysing Iran more difficult. Um, and it can lead to certain perceptions of what's happening in Iran to take root uh, in the media, especially the Western media. And also that can have a kind of deleterious impact on, on policymaking and responding. So so actually to go back to, uh, to Sean's introduction, that's why we've done this report. That's kind of the raison d'etre of why we've done this report is to, is to set out actually how OSIN can be used in the three areas we've written about in terms of the protest in September, the breakout estimate and the nuclear issue and succession, how OSINT can be used um, and how we go about authenticating that leakage of OSINT from a country like Iran uh, into, into actionable insights and intelligence assessments for our customers. Yeah, thank you. I should have I should have mentioned at the beginning for the listener that the James team on on the podcast today are responsible for the creation of a, a significant paper, Iran at the Crossroads. So we'll put a link in the um, link to the podcast for those that wish to see it, if we can. Jake, you had your hand up. Yep, thanks, Harry. And, and I, I agree with Lewis that we we do see a lot of leakage of information coming out of Iran, and, and I think that's really important as you build build your assessments using open source. And, and what I tend to do is look and see if a similar event that I that I'm researching or looking at has happened in the past, and, and see if that information has become public, because I, I like to think of Iran as a creature of habit. So, you know, they, they tend to mirror their activities. And that's where I find open source to be very valuable is to, to look at, see what's happened in the past and how they responded. Just before I go to Sean, Lewis, an interesting start there to say that open source can be a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Are you alluding to the fact that it can be filled with myths and disinformation or just that there is a huge amount of information they've got to wade through? So it's actually all free. So I think information overload can be a detriment, but obviously as, as long as the information is good, it's you can decipher that information for analytical use. But you're absolutely right. The the misinformation and disinformation is a emerging problem as OSINT becomes a more established source of intelligence for companies and for intelligence agencies. That's obvious those two are also obvious concerns. But and there is the the partisan nature of 
someone using OSINT to their own end. So, you know, we'll, I think we'll talk about this in more detail when we cover the protests. But that's one of the things we've addressed in, in this report is exactly the use by partisan media across the West, but also those who cover Iran that may be based in the West from the diaspora, that can have an impact on the narrative of the protests. I mean, it can actually really affect some intelligence assessments, as I said, for policymakers, if there is this bias emerging of something happening that isn't quite the case or what we assess to be the case, that can have dire policy choices and implications. So yeah, misinformation and disinformation is is something we've seen. I mean, it's something OSINT analysts should really be on guard for, not just for Iran, but across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Sean, we talked about that in the past, but um, before we go back to that, because I think there's a discussion to have there around the unrest and how the West media has been trying to convey that in a particular way. Before we go to that, Sean, you had an observation? Yeah, I was just really, Lewis nailed it, and I was just going to reinforce his first point that we always analyse the intelligence that is available. And of course, in this case, how much of it is almost self-filtering? Because by definition, the people that are getting intelligence out are trying to message. So we've got to be careful not to get a skewed view. And this is where, you know, the expertise that's in the room right now and the experience in the background is so important because you've got to say, okay, what is different here? As opposed to just, to use the vulgar American phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid and uh, being influenced by, you know, people who are trying to influence. So it's a really challenging target. So Trishti, if you don't mind, you're, you're, a lead an- you're one of the lead analysts on this broader aspect of intelligence on and about Iran. How, what was your view about how useful open source is for you and your work? Well, when you're dealing with Iran, it's, uh, it's very difficult to find credible information, you know, or the ground truth. Because, you know, we have limitations in because we don't have reporters on ground who can report the reality. For example, the protests, if you take the protests, uh, we had several videos uh, on social media that, you know, showed that showed the nature of the protests that were going on. But we had to uh, we couldn't take them at face value every time. So what we relied on is triangulation. If I found three different videos from the same location showing the same nature of protests, then I determined that, okay, this is the way it's going. That's how it was. Yeah, the triangulation is certainly something, Sean, we've talked about in the past, which is always under that umbrella we bring out when we talk about open source information and the intelligence we derive from it, tradecraft. Good tradecraft determines you need good sources and good process to understand what the sources are really telling you. To your point, Shrishti, for example, triangulation. Jake, just to bring you for one final bite on this particular topic, the intelligence community that you know well, clearly Iran will be a high priority. It's one of uh, a small number of very high priority areas of the world that certainly Western intelligence communities will be interested in. What do you think the appetite is from the intelligence community for open source to support their work? Well, you know, I'll just take you back over, over the last decade. When I was a member of the intelligence community, you know, we, we stressed open source intelligence, but I don't know that it had the same value. So just to give you an example, I, I remember writing a report and I included a piece of open source intelligence in that report. And, you know, one of my senior intelligence analysts looked at the report and asked where I came up with this assessment and I looked back and said, well, you know, it's from open source. And they gave me a a weird look and said, well, anybody can read open source. You know, we work in classified. So, you know, that, that took me by surprise. But I think that view has changed over the last decade to where now open source is one of those priority forms of intelligence and it's valued. And most times I think information gets out in the public before it does in the classified. So it's really valuable and it can help uh, an analyst break a case. 
and Sean, Sean, you and I have spoken of uh, this numerous times in the last couple of years about how open source has come through a change, a shift in its perceived value, and indeed, in some cases, is leading intelligence analysis. And we've spoken to enough guests to hear that, have we not? Yeah, and I think, I mean, what you're talking about, Jake, and we were in the same organisation, is, is a cultural shift. And I think largely that's happened. There aren't many Luddites left now that just dis you know, completely disassociate themselves with open source because there is so much information that is valuable. I think there's still sometimes a perception from some of the analysts that they should ignore it because their seniors won't won't appreciate it. But I think we're getting through that. We're not there yet, but but I think you know largely that is happening. I mean, I have seen, and and I don't really mind this. I don't think I have seen open source intelligence be reclassified as secret no form because they think people will read it more. Now that is a, again a cultural issue and a security <laughs> issue in itself. But as long as they're using it, then maybe we can let that go for a bit. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great example of uh, being very pragmatic about trying to get something through to the boss by putting the right title at the top. Um, all right, let's let's move on. Uh, time will always be against us. Let's move on to something uh, practical. So the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, Sean, you described it as stalled and probably unlikely to be resurrected was the, uh, the inference I've got from where you described it. So Iran is declaring that the nuclear program is entirely for peaceful uh, purposes. We're not here to discuss the likelihood or otherwise of that being true. But let's make an assumption that they're actually trying to build a nuclear weapons capability. That's actually a very, very tricky thing for us to assess from open sources, is it not? But how close are they to achieving nuclear weapons capability from our assessment, from an open source perspective? And then we'll move on to how we actually come up with that assessment. So, Lewis, perhaps you can get us started on that. Yeah, sure. And I think this is a great example from the actual first question of, well, how can OSINT help? And in terms of Iran's nuclear weapons acquisition, if it chooses to do so, like one of the problems is that this is an incredibly complex and momentous decision for Iran to, to implement. So first of all, it's a long process. It's not the media will come out at certain times and say Iran is close to a nuclear weapon. But what does that actually mean? Because from the, the actual uh, acquiring of the nuclear fissile material, that's one thing. Then there's the actual weaponization of that material uh, into a warhead, which is another thing. And then there's a delivery of that vehicle. So those are the three things um, that should be assessed together, but also independently, technically. But then there's also the other questions such as, well, if Iran does do this, will it, the political choice is, does it leave the NPT? Does it declare itself a nuclear power? What's its nuclear doctrine? What's the softer stuff like command and control? Is it with the Ayatollah? Is it with the president? So there's, so just to emphasize on this, there's a whole gamut of this argument that I think gets lost in the media. Now, for us to tackle this as, as open source intelligence analysts, we think and have developed a breakout estimate using open sources. So the part of the puzzle about the acquiring of weapons grade fissile material, that's where we've applied our OSINT analysts and expertise. And the reason we've done this is because over the last two to three years, since President Trump withdrew from the JCPOA and Iran started transgressing the JCPOA. There's been a lot of different assessments, a lot of, as we talked about, some rather partisan, some rather scary, because it always grabs a headline that Iran is about to have a nuclear weapons capability. Well, no, actually, we've said the breakout estimate is the time it would take for Iran to acquire one nuclear weapons worth of nuclear material. 
So that's where OSINT, so we, we can make sure that we define it, and then we need to go and build our methodology using open sources. And that's probably a great actual time to bring in Tristy Punja, who is the is the mathematical genius on our team. I'm more of the concept guy. She's, she she makes sure that the concepts <laughs> actually work out. Um, so Tristy can explain that. Yeah, but I'm that's what I would say on that. So uh, Tristy, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. So without scaring me with mathematical equations, which I won't understand, please. Can you help me understand how it is that we can build an estimate of this nuclear breakout as defined by Lewis that will give us a true estimate of just how close a country like Iran would be to the nuclear weapons capability that everyone is claiming they're very close to? So when we started working on Iran's breakout capability 2020, uh, I think the biggest challenge we faced was the lack of reliable, detailed and unbiased uh, single source of information regarding Tehran's real nuclear capability. So what we uh, decided to do through Breakout is give the customer a good idea about what Iran's intentions are through the Breakout capability. So uh, we relied on ten, uh, you know technical information available in the open sources regarding Tehran's uh, latent technological capabilities and uh, its current capability in terms of enrichment to calculate this breakout estimate. So most of the information that we needed, like the stockpile and the enrichment level of the stockpile, when I say stockpile, I mean the enriched uranium stockpile. So uh, all this information was available on uh, through IEA's uh, which is the International Atomic Energy Agency, their quarterly mm -hmm. report. So the information was on this, these aspects were available on the open source through these reports, and these are updated quarterly. So uh, that part was covered. But what we didn't have is the technical information on, say, the functioning of centrifuges, efficiency of centrifuges. And these are the things that we, again, had to do a lot of OSINT research, triangulation, and all such processes to determine and uh, use that for our breakout calculations. So how long does a process like that take, Shristi, to actually get to a point where you feel as though you're gathering sufficient content in your analysis that you can start to triangulate well enough that you can say, our estimate of the breakout of Iran nuclear capability is X. How long is that process? Depends on how lucky you are, Harry. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I suppose, uh, I mean, it took us about, say, uh, two to three months, I would say. Okay. And we had a fixed number of factors that we had to, things that we had to factor in to calculate the breakout. That didn't change. What we needed was credible information. And that required a lot of digging through the open sources, sometimes even consulting external experts who have worked with the IAEA previously. So that gave us a lot of insight on certain things that, you know, me, I'm not a nuclear engineer. So for me to understand how much quantity, how much quantity of uranium enriched uranium is required in reality to build a nuclear bomb is something that a nuclear engineer can, you know, give more insight about. So... Right. Yeah. Right. So it's not just about getting that report from the atomic agencies. It's also about speaking to experts who really understand the so what of that content and bringing that together. Lewis, sorry, you had you had a comment to make. Yeah. No, that's that's um, Trish is exactly right. And I, I would just add that 
for OSIM, we also need to be very clear in our methodologies what we're not including. So in our methodology, we say, you know, we assume that this is not taking into account these factors, which we are unable to verify. Iran might very well have, you know, six other facilities dedicated to spinning centrifuges that we don't know about through the open sources. So in our breakout estimate, we make very clear, and if you subscribe to James, you can see it in our Iran CBRM profile, but if you don't subscribe, maybe you should, that we actually list out to customers exactly what Shristi is doing and what her assumptions are, what OSINT we've used and what we don't have. Because, yeah, because that methodology is important to convey to our customers, because I think there's a risk sometimes that OSINT may overstep itself. And that's where OSINT may get a bad rep because it overstretches itself. We should be very clear of what we can and can't cover. Sean, I'm interested to come to you and to Jake for an intelligence community mm. perspective of the utility of this kind of estimate from open source intelligence. Shristi, you had a point there before I go to Sean and to, uh, to Jake. Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, to what Lewis said, just about transparency. So even when we did find other breakout estimates online, there was no transparency about the process that was used, the methodology that was used. So what we did by building a methodology was give the customer the transparency to understand, okay, this is how it's being calculated and this is the information that's being used. Right. So, you know, minimize right. the misinformation about it. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I think... Is it not fair to say to Sean and to Jake, both ex-intelligence analysts themselves, that actually just knowing how something was estimated and the process and the sources that were used is actually very useful for you to assess against your own, perhaps more exquisite secret versions of the same? So, Sean, let me just start with you in terms of an intelligence community's perspective of an estimate generated from open sources, such as the one we've heard here from James with the breakout estimate. Yeah, well, I think that uh, there's a couple of other points I wouldn't mind making as well, actually, on the back of what Lewis said. But yeah, I think validation is one of them on, on open source. And, and a lot of the information, let's face it, that's being used is from the AIEA as well. So, you know, one would think or like to think we're going to come up with similar conclusions. And that's always good to reinforce without having, you know, groupthink or anything like that. So I think that is important, particularly when the focus is on one specific area because you do tend to go to the sources that you know and trust so the ic will go to its own sources you know the exquisite stuff as well and there's a degree of granularity that will be different and where there are gaps you know that is where i see the ic going right okay now let's put our exquisite resources as you call them into trying to find what those intelligence gaps are and building up a bigger picture but this is a classic case where i think open source very much can can help to validate what is going on within the intelligence community i've got a couple things to say but i'll let jake finish on this one first yeah let me come back to you just a second so jake your perspective on this utility of the open source breakout estimate yeah i'm, I'm gonna I, I agree with everything sean said on on reinforcing your pre-assessments as an analyst i think that's really important but uh, i'll take this a, a different angle an assessment by jane's is important because it's unclassified so now you have a shareable document that you can go in and, and, and have a discussion with your, your allies and try to get you know their thoughts and positions. And you know, that's that equally and, and sometimes more important to see what you what your friends are are thinking and where their assessments are at this point. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great point. And Sean, you and I have certainly heard that that word used frequently in the discussions about utility of open source, which has come really to the fore, I think, with Ukraine, where you've got governments of the world who are not used to dealing with other governments closer to Ukraine geographically. And how do I share my intelligence with them without yeah. revealing capabilities? So, yeah, I think it's a great, great point. Sean, you had another couple of points you wanted to make. 
Yeah, just um, just again, on, and I think there's two really important points here. I think it's all very easy with an intelligence problem set to say, right, you know, we're the end of a certain thing. So we've reached breakout right now, finish and move something else. But this is a journey. This will not be ongoing. for, And even if they do uh, and when they do, I would argue, you know, reach that capacity to create one, you know, or enough material for one nuclear weapon. It's very important to, to say it in that way. That's not going to stop the process. It will keep going. So you've got to keep monitoring it. But then I go back to the the really other good point where threat equals capability plus intent plus opportunity. So if the capabilities are there, what is the intent? It's what Shristi was saying, actually, is that we've really got to understand what they want to do with it. So that needs us to look at what their doctrine is going to be, but also at the tactical level, how and when and, and why are they going to weaponize it? You know, you might have the right level of materials to actually produce a weapon, but actually weaponizing, as others have found, is quite complicated. So, you know, we need to be looking where would that happen? Why would that, sorry, how would that happen? And what would be our indicators and warnings? So it's part of a full journey. And, and you know, I might argue that when you're starting to look at doctrine and how a country will use a particular capability that's when again you know open source has got a chance because these things get discussed at the political level and you may get exposed i'm not saying that will be the case in this in this event but you know so this is all part of a journey yeah just to add to what sean said yeah it's a breakout is just an estimate of the time needed for one weapons uh, worth of nuclear industry uh, uranium so it's not necessarily you know, determining what happens after that, which is mm. the process of weaponization and uh, the all the, the political decisions that come into play. Also, to add to what Jake said about unclassified information, so just I think a uh, couple of days back, the Under Secretary of Defense stated to the House of Representatives that it would take Iran 12 days to break out. Now, the Jane's estimate is about say eight to nine days. Now. The, we go back to the methodology again, and because most of the open uh, other open sources use the IAEA's term, which is called uh, sufficient quantity or uh, something along those lines, which is 25 kgs is the one uh, is the amount that is needed to build a nuclear weapon. But what Jane's is using is less than that because we have consulted with external experts who don't believe that this this quantity uh, that's uh, you know uh, stated by the IAEA is updated they think that it's that it's outdated and the technology today would mean that we would require lesser quantity to build uh, a nuclear weapon so that's that's another thing that you know uh, goes back to what Jake added yeah so again understanding how the estimate has been created and how it comes up with the outcome is uh, almost as important as the estimate itself for the reasons we've said all right look i sense we could probably spend the next hour talking about this but i'm going to move us on let's move on to the internal unrest that we've seen reported out of the country in recent times i think this it's fair to say there've been some fairly optimistic commentary about what might be going on and what that might be leading to in terms of potential regime change, et cetera. Now, it's fair to say that the unrest has been fairly un enduring, perhaps more so than we've been used to. But how realistic is this scenario of uh, regime change, given what we've seen from in internal unrest? Is this misinformation or misunderstandings of what's going on in the country? Uh, let me start with you, Lewis, on that question. Yeah, thanks. I, uh, this has been a, a fascinating test case for, for open source intelligence and also for, for the MENA team in, in our new country intelligence unit. So, you know, this is in no way bragging in any sense, but our assessments 
early on, uh, a month or two after the protests, were that this was unlikely to you know, uh, pose a significant challenge to the regime. And I think actually this poses a really great question of, you know, well, OK, our assessment seems to have borne out, but that's in hindsight. But actually, one of the reasons that we we, we actually thought about it is, well, why is this our assessment? Because th- there's protests everywhere. There's protests across the world, not just in Iran. But the problem is, is this was quite a significant outbreak of protests in the country against an autocratic regime that does, you know, shoot its own people. So, you know, for us, we had to go a bit deeper. And I think this is where OSIN, as an input, we needs to develop its tradecraft to make sure that the analyst is it's got its OSIN input. But to get to its output of intelligent assessments, it needs to be a bit more open about the black box in between. And this is the great old question of structured analysis techniques and what's in that black box. Is it intuition? Is it art or is it science? And I think for us, we adopted a model to help us clarify our assessments from Hossein Basharia, who adopted, who's got eight factors when looking at revolutionary moments. And in fact, this helped us to actually solidify our outlook and assessment much more coherently to us, but also to the customer. Because, and this is what our report details, it says, look, actually the protests, while they are highly emotional, there's a lot of protests and it is significant. It's significant mainly in its anger, right? It's significant in the sense of people are clearly fed up with this autocratic regime. But, and that's a big but for our intelligent assessment is this is not a threat because one, well, there's no leadership of the protests. Two, there's still, from what we could see, elite cohesion among the Iranian regime. There's still significant capacity of the security forces. And also then the demographics, you know, so actually in terms of mass discontent, the protests Tristy and I were tracking, we saw a lot of young people, a lot of students, women did participate in quite large numbers. But that's not enough for a revolution. That's not enough to overthrow a regime. So what are what are the middle classes doing? What are the working classes doing? Where's the buy-in from the other segments of the population for this? So I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to go on a little bit, and there's a lot to digest there. But overall, I think this was a test case, not just of OSINT as an input, but also for us as analysts to check our black box and to make sure we know why we're saying what we're saying, but also our customer does, and how that may change with new events and inputs into that model. Yeah, that's great. And John, I'll come to you in just a second. I, I think what I took from that was when you mentioned the use of a framework, a model to actually start to segment what you're seeing, understand how those things interrelate, and then coming up with predictable and somewhat normalized outcomes from your analysis, as opposed to it being, as you say, a black box, which is very, very hard to analyze what's going on inside and it's spitting out results. Sean? I was just going to reinforce what Lewis said in terms of, you know, you can learn parallels here. So the Arab Spring, for example, you know, the reason that a lot of the the, uh, regime changes failed was because they were protesting against something, but there was no organisation or no no sort of new model or new leader or new philosophy around which to uh, to to sort of cohere. And and that was a real issue. And I suspect that's what we're seeing here as well. Yeah, Jake. Yeah, th- thanks, Harry. Uh, you know, if you if you look at the the protests, you know, I think it got Iran analysts excited and and talking about regime change because you know they're they're the largest form of demonstration since the 2009 Green Movement. But but I do agree with Lewis's assessment that uh, you know at, at this point the regime does not look threatened. But here again is is the importance of open source. If you look past the current 
protests and, and see what's going on. Like they're not happening in a vacuum and, and see what actions the government has taken. You can start to draw some conclusions as we look at, you know, uh, an issue like succession. If the Supreme leader was willing to be more flexible and open up the regime and negotiate with the opposition, he would have done so already. Instead, what we've seen is the exact opposite. He's actually dug in and pushed the government more to the right, to the hardliners. You know, so he's expanded the authority of the IRGC and the besieged forces. Um, you know, they, they've led the crackdown on the opposition movement, arrested, imprisoned demonstrators. Uh, he's hired, appointed a new country police chief who has ties back to the 2009 Green Movement. These, and this is on, and this is after the after clearing out the assembly of experts, which appoints the next supreme leader to make sure that it's stacked with his loyalists and supporters. So if you if you take all of these. All of these activities, it leads us to a direction where, you know, five years ago, the assessment may have been, you know, there's there's a potential that we might get a reformist as the next supreme leader. And, and today, looking at the activities and the steps taken, all of the uh, the data points lead toward the next supreme leader being another centralist and supporter of the supreme leader, which you know may may draw opposition when that time comes. But as Lewis said. You know, without without an organization and leadership, it'll fizzle and have the same results. Yeah, just a matter of interest for me. Just how pivotal, how powerful is this position of the supreme leader from a Western perspective? We're not tuned to that sort of leadership, the religious-based leadership, in the way that we can see this is the case there. But just how powerful is it in the regime of Iran to have? the supreme leader, the Ayatollah, doing what he's doing. Jake? Well, he's taken that position, which he's held now for since 1989, and he has removed all forms of opposition. He is the single most powerful person, official in, in, in the government. So while he's living, I assess that no one would be willing to challenge him. And you make that assessment based on a range of different data points that you alluded to earlier particularly the way he has flushed out people that might be considered passive or even against him, as well as many other data points, I take it. Yeah, I mean, just look at look at the, the last presidential election. They disqualified every candidate who would be considered a, a reformist or, or not a loyalist. So it was he almost handpicked his president, and he's done that with every other important body within the government. So the judiciary, the assembly of experts, the, the legislative body, they'd all be considered hardliner or, or pro-hardliner. Right. Liz? Yeah, no, 100% of what Jake said. And I think what I, it was a couple of articles or it, it definitely emerged during the first three months of the protests was that the IRGC might break away and, and somehow support the protests um, and set up some sort of military government and topple the Ayatollah. You know, and, th and that's, again, what we talked about before, where the, the OSINT has got to clearly delineate the noise from what is, is authentic and useful. And this is where people start to mirror image or start to project their own hopes, you know, on open sources and use open sources to their own effects. You know, is, is there a chance that the Ayatollah could be overthrown? Yeah, there's there's always a chance, but it's a it's very, very unlikely or almost certainly 
certainly not the case until we check other factors. And I think that's where the model does come in again, useful, where we assess each of these people, whether it's the Ayatollah, the IRGC, what are their interests? What are their what are what are the kind of indicators and the drivers that would indicate that the IRGC might be turning against the Ayatollah? It's not it's not impossible, but it's you know it's very unlikely. And we need to, as OSINT analysts, set up, you know, so we've got our inputs. As we said, we we've got that that methodological look, you know, kind of box that we're using to actually analyze the input of OSINT. But, but yeah. also not getting stuck by these methodologies. They can't just be exclusive. You have got to accept that there's other other things factors out there as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, all three of you, uh, Sean as well, for your contribution to that. It's a fascinating topic, taking us right back to where we started then. So we've got this difficult challenge of looking at what's a relatively actually quite closed environment for us to penetrate with open sources to draw utility. That was the, the question at the beginning. And what we've done, is we've looked at that through the prism of several things, not just the problems on the streets of Iran that we've seen in recent times, not just even the succession planning and the way that the, that is being swayed perhaps towards a more hard line, but also the nuclear breakout problem, which is a really nutty issue. And I think in all three cases, we've seen uh, real utility from an open source perspective for a variety of different purposes. So just to wrap up, as always, uh, I'm going to ask each of you, if you wanted the audience to take one thing away from this session, what would it be? Jake, what would your one takeaway be? Yeah, my one takeaway is as you look at the potential for the Supreme Leader succession, if the Supreme Leader determines that the government is not stable, you may see him, which would be, yeah, there's no blueprint for, for the succession process because it's only happened once in, in the Islamic Republic's history. You may, you may see the Supreme Leader call for his successor prior to his death. In that case, we may see a hereditary succession. Interesting. Thank you, Jake. Lewis. I suppose it's too brazen to say that people should subscribe to Jane's and read our report as a takeaway. But um, (laughs) on a more more serious note, I think it's on the emphasis of, you know, and this mirrors my own journey of OSIN is an increasingly valuable sector, but it's, you know, it's an input, it's an intelligence input. And we should, as an OSIN industry, focus on those, you know, that the process that goes through and how it gets to our outputs and make sure we're we're firmed up methodologically and um, from a structured analysis perspective there. Yeah, thank you. Trishti, your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, I think one takeaway for, for me is Iran's intentions for, or or say rather say, incentive to build a nuclear weapon is something that's in question right now. So we, we need to look at what would be what would be the cost that Iran has to pay in terms of, uh, say, economically, which is already paying to a certain extent right now. And also and politically what what would be the price that Iran has to pay and when it comes to succession when we when you're talking about you know issues such as, such as uh, regime stability and succession would getting a nuclear weapon actually bolster supreme leaders yeah. position or the or the uh, let's say the principalist position in Iran or is it going to be a challenge even after they build a nuclear weapon thank you Steve. that's great sure final word so, other than the very obvious point that you know, open source intelligence does have a pretty strong role, even in the hardest of targets. And I think that's really important. It's not just gap filling. It's not just context, you know, uh, and it's not just shareability. It's actually got some value in itself. But I'd, I'd, I'd use an almost more subtle one as well. And it's an area of tradecraft that we've spoken about a little bit before that to fully understand a particular intelligence problem, you need to try and get into the mindset of the potential adversary or the person you're looking at, not look at it through your own lens. If you 
if you like. And and I, you know, there's a, there's a really good anecdote for this. I was privileged enough to be part of a, a really quite high level think tank when ISIL was at its prime. Uh, we were in Jordan with a bunch of academics and other people that really knew the subject on and, and the 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 discussion was what do we do about it and there was an Iranian academic that joined as well which I got quite excited about and funny enough when he turned up he didn't have two heads and wasn't well, didn't have explosives all around him he was a very articulate very clever person and of course I got into quite a deep discussion with him and he was saying to me look you know I know you think we're really bad people but look at it from our perspective you know we see ourselves as the custodio- custodian of the Shia faith and you know that is around what we base everything if you put us in the middle of a map and look all the people that are surrounding us it is all people that wish to do that harm which is why we do what we do now you know i will take some of that at face value i mean some of it clearly isn't true but but you know from his perspective i absolutely genuinely believe that and, and many people do so you need to get into, you know, what makes, what, what's the incentive, what, what is the, the philosophy, and you know, what, why do they think as they do? We've covered it before. Thanks, Sean. And my my final takeaway is actually one that's actually quite practical, and that is, Lewis and Shrista, you both talked about the use of models to help you break down the analysis process, make the tradecraft repeatable and predictable in terms of the kinds of things that it produces as, as an outcome. And I think that's quite an interesting topic in itself, is what are the models that we use for analytical purposes? But rather than starting that conversation, we'll hold that for another day. But let me finish the session then by saying a huge thank you to you, Shristi, Jake and Lewis. Really, really valued your inputs on an interesting topic around Iran. And uh, given that you work quite closely to where I work, stand by for further requests to do more of this in the future. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks, Harry. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.